So the, I see Kierkegaard as finitely struggling with the infinite question of how can I not be the idol? How can I not become an idol? And how can I rather become the icon of God? And so here's my example. This is the icon of the, of the harrowing of death. Jesus went into Hades and he preached the gospel and he brought people from the dead and he's going to heaven. And those on the terrestrial are taking notes. They're writing gospels. This is Jesus. But this isn't Jesus. This icon points to the prototype, to Jesus. So too, and human beings do this all the time, I look at the face of the beloved. Let's say, Julian, you and I are best friends. I look at you now. What I'm looking at is actually your icon. This is your present instantiation. Present instantiation. There's a two-dimensionality to what you are right now. I don't, because I lack your depth. Prototype. If I do the latter, I'm going after your icon in its fullness. If I just accept you at face value, if I want a quick and easy label of who you are, and that's all you'll ever be, I'm confusing the icon with your prototype. I'm making you an idol. And we do it with God all the time. We're beings, we're creatures that constantly decide icon, idol, icon, idol, icon, idol. And it's, it's the same with who we are as subjects. We are either calcifying into an idol or we're opening into our icon. And that's why Kierkegaard is always circumambulating, getting around to his point. It's because he can't say it because it can't be instantiated now. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, might be something similar going on with his pseudonyms. Uh, mm. Yeah, I can't finish that thought. <laughs> no, precisely because they're verbal icons. Pseudonyms are fictitious, fictitional characters that serve as icons to the prototype, to the proper substance. And you get to the proper substance through the icon. Yeah, it's, prototype. it's this, um, his notion that his, his pseudonyms are sort of mirrors of existence where you're supposed to hold them up to yourself and see yourself by them. Um, and it, so there's this, how does he put it? He has this... Um, Double, double something. Um, can anyone help me out here? Double movement. Notion of double. Um, sorry, can't. But this notion that there's, there's sort of 
uh, two layers to it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting old today. <laughs> My take on the pseudonyms is it is, is a kind of a vehicle towards emphasizing the subject of it subjectivity that he wants to always put forth if you take fear and trembling and you're looking at abraham and if you were to write the story if you were trying to tell the way fear and trembling is done from a you know from a third person perspective let's say and not have the pseudonym well what you'd be pretending to be doing would be having a transparent view onto um onto what you were seeing you would be pretending to have access direct access by putting the pseudonym there you you are you are forced to be the subject you know it's 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 like you're identifying with a character in a in a movie or or a narrative the character in the narrative except here he's forcing you to to identify with the with the view onto the narrative so you're 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 uh you're kind of pushed back always into into a kind of your own subjective view on it rather than pretending like you're you're this quiet non-involved observer seeing the truth uh, know, that's, that's yeah it's a, yeah yeah so the word i was looking for is double reflection um where you you come at the text and then you sort of try to think okay what is kirkegaard getting at here and then there's this double thing where you sort of turn the text back on yourself and there's this mirror where you sort of reflect on your own existence using the pseudonym and using what Kierkegaard is getting at there. So um, I think that's what it means by double reflection, which, yeah, it, it maps on to Matt's notion of the, the icon. Um, yeah, where, where I can have this superficial interaction with someone or I can... Um, relate being to being, I guess. But our, our, to go back to what Matt was saying, are not icons supposed to be things that you meditate on for um, your own edification? Is that true? Because if that's true, then the only useful icon will be Anticlimacus, the guy that wrote our book. Right? Because the other icons are, none of them are Christians. Or the other pseudonyms, none of them are Christians. You see so what I'm saying? Would, yeah, I would distinguish. type and function. So in route to Dr. Field's statement about the pseudonyms being not uh, types, but functionally serving the purpose of showing us that we cannot approach reality without some kind of screen. And that screen is in fact a view. And we can change views like we change masks on a stage. It doesn't invalidate the world, but it reminds us epistemically that we're always taking a stance about how we interpret knowledge before we interpret any evidence. So where the icon comes into play is the icon for me, and historically as it's argued through the church, 
the ecumenical councils, I think it was the sixth or the seventh, is these are windows to heaven. These are designed to point us out of a view to the view that will bring us closer to the prototype. The prototype of St. Mark, St. Paul, Jesus, Theotokos, Mary. In, in Kierkegaard's work, I'm less interested in which one points to what, but I would say they are treatable as verbal icons. In the same way, by the way, that Shakespeare's characters on a stage play are treatable as verbal icons pointing to prototypes. For example, Hamlet, I would say, is a verbal icon that people can assume. They just assume it on stage. They don't assume it in their daily lives. That points to the prototype of, let's say, a Renaissance philosopher or some historical contingent amalgam of philosopher. And another take on it is that you've got all of these um, pseudonyms battling away inside of you. Um, they all come from Kierkegaard's mind. So he, he was probably, <laughs> he was probably um, finding himself sort of torn between all of these figures, maybe. And this is really where uh, Jungism and Christian use of icons diverge, I would say. Like I was reading in the Discord today, uh, someone's interpretation of Jung was putting the mind at center and all the archetypes are projections of the self that you in action go out and find and bring back into center. Bring the archetypes home, which is the mind, and in that way, reintegrate the capital S self because you are just a mind that um, is split into all these several fragments that he called archetypes. Whereas the Christian would say the icons point us to a reality that is not ourselves. This is where the resurrection becomes important. Jesus is really out there, embodied in a mode of being, and he is his own hypostasis. He's the second person of the Trinity. So when I use an icon, like that harrowing of Hades, I'm using it to get closer to the prototype of the second person, the Trinity, that is independent of my mind, so independent of my conceptions, independent of my will, independent of my heart, independent of my existence. And so it's functions to get us, to train us, to meditate on our own observational capacity. It's a meta project, it's a meta discipline. It's presuppositional, icon, icon veneration is presuppositional, apologetics, <laughs> I mean, in a way, for the self, it's a self-discipline. So, in the uh, way, okay, I'm sorry. So I'm going to go to and back to T.S. Eliot here. And uh, I don't know, this is kind of maybe different direction, but and it, it'll ho hopefully fold in Jonathan Pajot's take on all this. Uh, T.S. Eliot wanted to, dis wanted to, he didn't like the symbol, literary speaking, the way symbols were used in literature. 
And he, he wanted to argue for another kind of way of using um, imagery in, in literature, in particular in poetry. And he called that the objective correlative. And what he meant by that was something I think that you can, um, you can take as, as kind of getting back to incarnation or getting back to the real thing. So let me just give you an example. In the, in the, um, in the uh, Great Gatsby, you've got this green light across the pond. I hope everybody knows this, but it's very symbolic for this yearning and longing he has for this woman. And the green light really has nothing to do with the woman, okay, or love, or it's just a green light, right? And T.S. Eliot would say, no, what you want to do is talk about, let's say, a rose. And when you talk about a rose, what you're talking about is not a symbol, the rose as symbol of love, but rather the rose is what the rose is, which is a flower, which is beauty. It's beauty that's transient. Flowers are beauty that are transient, right? It grows, it, it wilts, it, flowers have thorns. Flowers, uh, you know, roses are that. They are that. It's not that you're pointing to something else. It's you're showing an example of the thing that you're getting at, transience of beauty or transience of our experience. So I think the, um, you, you could, I think the, the, I might lose my track here, but I, I think the, I, um, and here's what I think that this points to Jonathan Bajot, who, who's ta constantly talking about the patterns, but he's talking about the patterns in our real experience. And he's saying those patterns in our real experience are the thing itself. They are the thing we're talking about. And if taken to the Christian realm, he's saying, look, the pattern of the Christian narrative is right there before us in our direct experience. If we just give it its substantiality that it, that it deserves. Uh, and so, so then the icon, the way I would describe the icons can maybe slightly different than you, Matt here, but the icon is actually the thing it, it, it it's put into the liturgy. It's put into the, the, the uh, practice of the, of the religious experience in the place that the thing itself is. And um, I don't know, that, that last step was probably a bit of a leap, but, um, but I think that's what Peugeot is trying to get at with icons there. Uh, I think Peugeot's take on the icon is sort of, it, it shows the pattern of existence, um, like from the lowest level up to the highest level, collapse, collapse into the single image. So, yeah, and that stuff is not distant from us. It's not something else. It's not pointing to something beyond our direct incarnate mm -hmm. experience. It's it's pointing to that very experience itself. Mm -hmm. So we do disagree there, because I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't make equivalent the experience of the icon and the that to which the icon refers or points. So you would, I would I, you not I, make I would that say, equivalent, right? I would not make that equivalent. Um, right. I got to, you. Use, to use the rose illustration, I would say it's pointing away from and uh, not uh, enfolding within. Ah, yeah. I do like the latter view um, where um, there's something inherent in the rose. Um, yeah, maybe I'm missing the whole argument here. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think you're right. It's referring to something general. I mean, we can we can go to the the general. You know, it, it there's the rose, 
but it's really pointing us to some general thing, transience of beauty or transience of the experience of beauty. That's a general thing. That's a universal, that's, you know, platonically beyond. And yet there it is. It is the, it, the rose is that as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not arbitrary that you're choosing the rose as an example of transient beauty, right? right. There there has to be some kind of a relationship between the word or the principle and the reality. So, uh, you know, this is a a point Ian McGillicris makes um, in in the master and his emissary where he uh, sort of takes on this notion of language as completely arbitrary. And he says, it's actually rooted fundamentally in experience. Um, so there is a connection between words and the world that way. I can't come up with an example right now, though. The way, I, the way I bridge it, while I believe holding them separate, is take, take the rose as icon for love. All right, what is the relationship, the objective correlative of love and See you later, Joshua. See ya. See you, Josh. Later. Take the rose as objective correlative for love. Love is, has this erotic dynamic to it, red. It has layers and they burst forth. It also has a sharpness to it that will take something from you, the thorns. It has this always green uh, vitality, reproduction. And we could do this all day. This is, in fact, doing what? I would say it's noting how Sophia, wisdom inheres in the icon, the rose itself, and Sophia inheres in the particular referent, the one to whom you give the rose. Now, never does the rose become the one to which you give it to, and never, but you give it to them because you recognize that there are qualities of semblance underneath the concept of wisdom. The rose is fashioned wisely, and so are you, my beloved. So take this in memory of my recognition. I agree with everything you said there. That's exactly right. Good. It's... It's just you don't jump off. You don't jump off to the the green light. You you keep it in the incarnate is the word I would use. I like that. I like that. Um, and as with all things incarnate, they require unpackaging. And so we need we need to do these dialogues together to to present the rose yeah. to one another. Yeah. Let's get back to the text. <laughs> <laughs> Who, need, who needs the text, man? Come on. <laughs> when we, yeah, we're like a ship that, that's uh, sailing too far from the dock, so yeah. you have to get that. <laughs> Come on, my boy. Uh, what, what did he say? Old sport? Old sport? In the great Gatsby. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah, let's go to the... Uh, where do you want to go from here? How about this um, notion of two forms of despair? Uh, would be an interesting point to discuss. Um, he says there can be only two forms of despair properly so called. If the human self had constituted itself, 
there could be a question of only one form that of not willing to be oneself willing to rid of to get rid of oneself but there could be no question of despairingly willing to be oneself um, so he draws a contrast there between this form of despair where you don't want to be yourself so this is sort of the the self looking at the self and then not liking what it sees and so it, so so fundamentally it wants to get um rid of itself it doesn't like itself as it is and this other notion is um despairing how does he put it despairing of the self despairs of becoming a self or something like that um I don't get quite what he's getting at with the latter one. Um, so if, if you didn't, if you don't, if you aren't the one who established the relation that you are, then there's only one form of despair. Or sorry, yeah, then there's two. But if, 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 you, if you didn't, like I said, sorry. It, or if you did, if you did establish that relation, then you could you could only despair by not willing to be yourself, right? Because willing to be yourself wouldn't be despair because you established the relation. Oh my goodness. Does that make sense? Yes. And then, right. and then if you, if if uh, but since you didn't establish yourself as a relation, if you do will to be yourself in spite of whatever, then then you're, you're, you can still be in despair, right? So you can will to be yourself in your despair, then you're still in despair. You couldn't do that if you were the thing that, that established the relation. I think there's a better way of saying that, but... I think you're, I think you're on to that. And that's, this is where he pivots on this notion of not being the one who established. Uh, so, so, and that's, that's what I meant before by this existential kind of languages. He, he could drop God in that or some external reference in that, but he, but he puts it in kind of abstract terms to have not established yourself or, or this kind of gesture at the other. And, and once that's introduced, it, it changes the dynamic, I think, like you just described. Mm -hmm. That is tantamount to the young person leaving home, the 18-year-old, right? This is when they come awake to, oh, I've inherited a set of presuppositions, uh, identity to some respect, that I did not choose. What am I going to do about that self-knowledge, that meta diagnosis or meta observation and you see them doing it in a number of ways they act out they revolt they go against etc etc one story in the bible that puts skin on the bones of that abstract uh, relationship pointing is the prodigal son he didn't choose to be born into the family of a father who was very wealthy and when he came alive to his contingency he chose to act out by saying, give me, give me what's mine right now so I can experience it right now. 
and establish it himself. That, that is to say, do it of his own um, without reference to. And that's then going to be this unmoored, ungrounded um, self-actualization. It's interesting, yeah, it's interesting yeah. that, that example of the parable you can almost say that when he makes that choice to go out on his own, he's in a sense better off than if he just stayed where he was. You know, this you can't get to faith unless through despair. I think that's maybe what's going on there. Yeah, his, bro- his brother didn't do as well, really, in the long in the long run. Yeah. So staying staying home is a way of, you know, I I think you're right. I think that's the notion of despair is somehow pivotal and Kierkegaard makes pains in the, in the book as you go forward to make sure you think you, you think that his commitment is look, even those people who don't think they're in despair, they're actually in despair or essentially everybody's in despair. Um, and I think, I think that's, I, that's, that's an interesting part of the text. It, it, it uh, foreshadows, uh, you know, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, this, the, um, the hermeneutics of suspicion um, and um, I don't know, that's a little bit of a tangent there, but I, I think you're absolutely right about that, 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 um, that you have to go through it in a certain okay. sense. He, he, that's beautiful. He, he uh, yeah, sorry. He, he predicts, not predict, not, he, he, what am I predates, gonna say? Um, pre- not predates. We know the word you're looking for. Yeah, words, man. Um, Prophesize, predicts. Uh, we all know the word. Yeah. Anyway, he comes before them, and he he and he he knows their their game before they play it, in a sense, and he plays it better. Yep. And gets totally gets agree. through it without going through without he gets through the atheism without losing God. I guess you could say. The way it's saying it. I think so that, definitely think of something think entirely just, different. But I'm just going to keep going for a second. Oh, um, and uh, I and in, in, in the university, I wrote a paper about uh, Holbein the Younger, who's a a painter. He painted a, a a picture, a really famous picture of Christ dead in the tomb. Uh, Caravaggio, I think his name is, painted one very similar. Anyways. A psychoanalyst named Kristeva did uh, a chapter of her book on it. And basically, I talked about Kierkegaard, how Kierkegaard would deal with it. And I think that Kierkegaard does that. He basically goes into the tomb with Jesus. He, he goes into, he goes right into the atheism where the atheists stay and then comes out again with Jesus, comes out of the tomb with Jesus. I think that's how, that's how I would say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I um, there there's something about um, you know you you often you sometimes hear the some people say things like like Nietzsche is sort of this um, very courageous figure, but in a way I think Kierkegaard is more courageous. Um, I don't. I couldn't exactly articulate it, but but I guess his notion of faith is one that requires more courage than this um, sort of facing the nihilism of the universe or whatever. It's it's he sort of 
he he sort of has the absurdity on both sides, right? It, it's the absurdity of faith and it's the absurdity of the life without faith. And he chooses the absurdity of faith and lives that absurd life. And so his, 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 his way of, of thinking about faith, which I think is the right way of thinking about faith, is a, much, is a more courageous position than, than the later existentialist, uh, atheist existentialist. Yeah. I would agree. I just, I just, just about that, I would say that um, Nietzsche never gets over himself. Mm. <laughs> he, well, I, yeah, I mean that in the, in the, you know, the sort of insulting way, but also <laughs> I, very technically, he doesn't get over himself. So what I'm thinking of is um, very so, so if Antiquamicus is Kierkegaard's um, sort of paragonal hero type, whatever, the thing, the guy that he wants to be, but can't be, then Zarathustra is the same for Nietzsche. And Zarathustra's problem was that he couldn't get over his nausea for, for the common person. So basically, you know, everyone, right? <laughs> everyone besides himself. He couldn't get over it. They made him, they made him want to puke, more or less. It's, and, it's, um, it's Dostoevsky again with um, in Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov, um, yeah. you know, murders this slimy old woman. He has this wonderful line about describing her, but essentially he just hates everyone except himself and he conceives himself as this sort of Nietzschean Übermann, Übermensch or something. Mm-hmm. And he, the resolution of that story is he essentially discovers that there's more than just himself, that he isn't actually the Ubermensch and there's something or someone that butts up against him and, and, and sort of throws him down from his um, self-established throne <laughs> in the end. Mm-hmm. So as we uh, speak of the hermeneutics of suspicion and we speak of moral courage, to live by faith, we can see going back that this not getting over himself, of which Nietzsche was an exemplar, we find this early on in Immanuel Kant. And I think with what I'm about to say, Kierkegaard can be read as uh, writing against Immanuel Kant or offering a response to Kant's uh, ethical problem, which is this. So Kant, before Kierkegaard, articulated the existential problem that we are bound as subjects to interpret every piece of evidence. We can't get at the evidence itself. We can't see it naked and pure. What that means by implication is there is no objective morality out there waiting for you to discover it and just share it with everyone. Morality has to be believed, and then shared and negotiated with others moment by moment. This is how a house stands and doesn't fall. Or if it's not done well, it falls and scatters. It's always negotiated because it's not there objectively. So Kierkegaard, uh, that's why after his critique of pure reason, when he said there is no objective morality out there to find, we have to come up with it and agree that the maxim will be universal for us. We have to all agree on that. 
he wrote the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals after that. Well, brilliant insight, but it begs the question of how are we going to choose to convince others of our way of doing things so that they can participate? Are we gonna do it with the sword, colonize, or are we gonna do it in humility, however that, whatever form that takes? Are we gonna argue for our view of this code or are we going to try to let the code seep into our view, right? This, is, this becomes the discussion of moral ethics from Kant on. And Kierkegaard, um, I believe, is a participant in that discussion in the route of um, the Christian, using a Christian framework, whereas Nietzsche was, you know what, no one is worthy of my ethic. Zarathustra was all about that. The common man isn't worthy of this ethic. Just use them to push our ethic further for the elite. Kierkegaard was trying to bring a code down to everyone while keeping everyone's real participation in it. In other words, their individual participation in the ethical expression of the community. Maybe this is one reason why he was so allergic to organized religion. He didn't want the ethic of religious community to be something supposed as, oh, it's just objective and out there, how we are to run the church. No, no moral maxim is objective and out there. We have to negotiate it. But how do we negotiate it as individuals without being subsumed into some pseudo objective code? And maybe he wasn't willing to do that personally and the closest he got was writing the books, which is an amazing achievement. But it still is very, very difficult for us today, and we're seeing how churches rise and fall on that very question of how do we negotiate a universal ethic together. Hmm. And a universal hermeneutic, I really meant to say, to Dr. Field's point of the hermeneutics of suspicion, it's a lot easier to throw an ax at the root of a biblical hermeneutic than to lovingly invite people in and give ground to others as we participate in a hermeneutical practice. Yeah, the way I envision the hermeneutics of suspicion is this kind of split image um, that is exemplified by all three of those, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, and then the whole 20th century in which, you know, what, what we see, you know, what we experience, what we can identify on the surface of things is always explainable by, you know, by this unseen level underneath, you know, the, the, the sexual passions for Freud, the, the material reality for, <clears throat> for Marx. Um, and, what that ends up doing is, and I hope I'm not going too far off in a different direction, but what that ends up doing is really giving to the, um, to the interpreter, the kind of the power to, to um, kind of own the interpretation. So, you know, Marx is sitting there saying, you know, look, uh, it wasn't Napoleon. He, he really, all of his decisions were meaningless. There was this underlying thing that I'm giving myself the right to interpret. So everybody's own consciousness or intention that they thought was going on, you know, it's, 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 it's really not that. I'll tell you what it really is. 
<clears throat> and then Freud has got the same thing, right? The individual walks in to talk with Freud and they've got all this stuff going on. They've got all this baggage, got all these emotions and these experiences and even actions and things they think of as intentions. And Freud says, oh, no, it's not that. That's that's not that. It's this other stuff, this other stuff you're not seeing, this stuff that's underneath. And I'll take the position to tell you what all that is. So that's a kind of a version of the deep alienation, I think, of the 20th century, where, where, you, where you've got the individual seeing himself uh, as, as uninterpretable to himself. And, and that which he directly, he or she directly experiences is, is, uh, is, is ungrounded, it's insubstantial. It's going to be seen at some point or another as the manifestation of something I'm not in control of and that's underneath me or, or coming from beneath. And, um, you know, I think the, the journey to, um, to, you know, kind of reintegration is in some sense the move towards uh, kind of reestablishing the ontological significance of that surface experience of, of what we of we of what we really see should in some sense be what we really really are um and without that we're going to constantly be uh, kind of seeing ourselves as kind of shadows or insubstantial representations of of forces that we don't really have any contact with there's there's something strange about rationality and on that model where on one hand you're saying you know we are sexual drives all the way down or we are material forces all the way down but but you step out of that and create a system that that explains the way things are um so there's there's weird presupposition that it's possible to step outside of the system um outside of the flux of material or uh, material or um, biological forces and this is the place that i put in my own kind of big pantheon of figures this is the place this is why i put kierkegaard so close to the center of that i mean he's not totally there because i've already talked about some of the things i don't kind of go completely with but the thing that he does is he puts the subject at the center and therefore you can't do that to yourself that is to say you can't have a hermeneutic well you can have a hermeneutic suspicion of your suspicion of yourself but then it it becomes despair it becomes um it becomes undoing yourself so you need to re-evoke the notion that you're really in touch with your own experience as an individual and and that's a big that's the meaning crisis for me in the in the 20th century okay wrap this up recording